Welcome to episode 52 of Customer Suplex. That's one year's worth of amazing conversations and content that will help you across every aspect of your marketing. Let me know what your favorite episode's been by tweeting me at Will Lawrenson, or if there are any topics you'd like me to find a guest for and cover, uh, again, just uh, ping me at Will Lawrenson and, and I'll see what I can sort out. If you've been following for a while, please do take 30 seconds to rate the podcast on iTunes. And if it's your first time joining us, I've got a fantastic episode lined up for you. This week, I'm chatting with Juliana Jackson, the CLV lady herself. Customer lifetime value is such a misunderstood and underrated metric, yet it's pretty much vital to the success of a business. Juliana's dedicated herself to educating the world around customer lifetime value. And so here she is on Customers Who Click. Hey, Juliana, thanks for joining me today. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, um, kind of your uh, your background, what you've been up to and why you're doing what you do at the moment? Hi, Will. Good to be uh, good to be here today. Well, I'm uh, Juliana Jackson and I'm the Chief Evangelist for uh, OmniConvert. And in my role, you know, as any evangel- a good evangelist to a, a wood, I'm uh, a person that spreads the good news and spreads the good word. In the case of uh, OmniConvert, I'm spreading the good word about uh, customer lifetime value, the principles of it, the tools, the frameworks for, uh, you know, how we call it data-driven uh, growth. And uh, together with uh, my boss, with Valentin, we are uh, the principal um, architects of the customer value optimization category, which is the category that we're trying. Uh, I mean, we claimed it already, but we're trying to king it and queen it. So yeah, I work with. Uh, I've been working with e-commerce and uh, SaaS companies for the last ten years, and uh, yeah, here I am. Uh, excited to uh, to talk to you uh, today. Awesome. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's interesting because lifetime stuff like lifetime value has been around for ages. Um, yeah. But I guess it's always just seen as this big overall piece. But actually, you've got to focus on ad optimization and conversion rate optimization and stuff like that. And that will just kind of naturally give you that that lifetime value piece, So, um, which is obviously not quite how it works. I think a lot of people would know what customer lifetime value is, really. But um, I guess what... Tell us a bit about it, kind of intro it quickly for us. But then, you know, why do brands need to be paying more attention to it, um, you know, and really using it as a key metric to drive the business? Cool. So the simplest way to define customer lifetime value for me is to ask yourself as a e-commerce brand owner, how much is a customer worth? Because... Customer lifetime value does not exist without uh, acquisition cost, right? So you cannot think about lifetime value if you don't think about your acquisition cost. It's not a standalone uh, metric that makes sense because you have to ask yourself, how much does the customer cost, which is the acquisition cost? And then you have to ask yourself, how much is the customer worth, which is the customer lifetime value? So when you combine these questions, you get to... um, to, you know, a more uh, essential or re- relevant uh, question, the success of your uh, of your brand, which is to what extent is a customer worth their cost? So when you think about customer lifetime value, first and the most important thing you need to figure out is the customer value, because not all customers are, uh, are created equal. Not all the customers are bringing the same uh, value to your business. So in this case, your job as a brand or as an e-commerce marketer is to make sure that you are aware 
to uh, are aware of how you can measure customer value and how you can understand which customers are there for the long haul or the ones that are just uh, coming and um, you know window shopping or in the case of you know e-commerce brands website shopping. Yes, yeah, uh, in a very simple words. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so out of, out of all the businesses that I've worked for or worked with, there's only one I can think of which really put a focus on this. The rest of the time, it was kind of a tar- we were working towards a target CPA and you know of, a, of an actual like paying customer, but that was it. There was no real consideration for for lifetime value. So even when we asked, you know, how is this calculated, or you know, w- what is the lifetime value of these segments? So you know, we know we know how, really how to calculate the CPA because it's pointless. It's pointless just saying, well, we're targeting a twenty pound CPA. Or twenty dollars, twenty euros, whatever. Because if your customers are worth ten thousand dollars, then you're just limiting yourself with that target CPA. But I had one business where we actually uh, kind of targeted, as in like budgeted for. Um, so targets for acquisition channels were based on a CPA to uh, projected lifetime value calculation. Uh, with lifetime value being calculated, oh, sorry, projected lifetime value being calculated over the first seven days of a of a customer's uh, interaction with the business. So we were still using, you know, it's it's kind of um, historical data, but we're just looking at, you know, if we're spending a hundred pound on a, acquiring a customer, we need to make sure that customer is we're expecting that customer to be worth at least three hundred, um, ideally more. So it was really a really interesting way of looking at it, you know. And uh, I, I, di- I didn't get to see into the the machine learning too much, but but yeah. But basically, it was it was based on how much customers spent in their first, their very first interaction, uh, how much they spent and inter- interacted over the next seven days. That would then give that um, that projected value and, and help us put put these customers into different pots and segments. Um, but yeah, like I said, it was it's the one place that's ever done it. And it really surprises me that no one else does, or, or you just don't see it as much. Um, I mean, I guess the way I, I said this, um, I said this yesterday after I had a conversation uh, on uh, Clubhouse with Steen Rasmussen and uh, June Lee, and we were um, uh, actually Bob Moesta joined the room. This was on Friday. And uh, we were talking about customer lifetime value in e-commerce and uh, Steen said something that stuck to my head mostly because I was saying the same things, but the same thing, but in six sentences, he said, uh, he said the following, that the main KPI for customer lifetime value is customer experience, which means that even if you have historical data, it's not going to be enough if you don't have the context on how the customers are, uh, you know, behaving or, you know, how Bob Moesta calls it, if you don't uncover the demand. So what I want to, like, just add here is that it's uh, it's easy, I guess. It's not, not, I don't know if the word easy is the perfect word for this, but it's to just, like, Google or find different formulas for customer lifetime value. God knows there are too many. And you calculate it. And let's say you calculate the segment of customers that you have and the value of each segment and so on. But if you don't have the context around those purchases or if you don't have the context around your um, the experience that you offer as a brand, 
it's not going to be easy just having uh, quantitative data to move uh, the the needle uh, further. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, like one one big mistake a lot of brands make is uh, just calculating that one customer lifetime value as an average across their entire uh, entire database. Yeah, because you, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. there might be some niche businesses which 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 don't have such variation, but I imagine the majority, the vast majority of businesses are going to have some customers worth maybe ten times what other customers are. So it doesn't make sense to to come up with that value because if your average customer value is a thousand pounds, but you've got loads of customers who are only spending a hundred, two hundred, then if you, you know, based on the kind of like, I guess the traditional formula of, of a three to one lifetime value to cost of acquisition, you're then going to be spending about 330 pounds to acquire a customer. And if you're acquiring a customer who's only worth a hundred, you're, you're wasting money. So, so it's definitely worth, um, segmenting properly like that uh what, then, what what would be a good way of doing that i mean uh the way obviously i'm preaching is through uh rfm segmentation but uh this be, it, it taps good in what i was about to say to you like yes segmentation is amazing however uh rfm segmentation is something that you know, appeared back in the 50s. So it has been recently, uh, it's recently becoming a very uh, big conversation starter in in e-commerce marketing because, uh, you know, the whole way the market is moving towards customer lifetime value. But I want to say that customer, uh, that RFM segmentation is not easy. (laughs) I know a lot of people are trying to make it sound like it's easy, I mean, I, I, I was one of those people I was trying to make it easy because I want people to understand, right, what it means. But the thing with RFM segments is that it's not enough to segment based on a, just one type of behavior. So just like to give, a, I guess, a short introduc- introduction on what the RFM means is uh, RFM is an acronym that stands for recency, frequency, and monetary value. And it's a method for understanding and and analyzing uh, your customers based on these three factors, recency, frequency, and monetary value. So the goal of the RFM segmentation would be to predict what, um, what clients are more likely to buy again in the future. And, uh, just just like a, a, a bracket next to this is that, yes, RFM can give you the quantitative data that uh, you need. So you can see different segments and, you know, you have your VIPs, you have your potential VIPs, your about to dump you, your lovers, your ex-lovers. But one thing is stopping uh, the segments part, which is the scores. So the RFM segmentation is not enough. You have to do RFM analysis. And RFM analysis means assigning a score from one to five to each of the customers inside the segment. So just like to give you, uh, let's take a, an example of, I don't know, the VIPs, because everyone, um, everyone knows the VIPs. Everyone is naming them differently, right? So VIP customers will have a score of 555. So 
five is going to be for recency, five for frequency, and five for monetary value. In, uh, in translation, this means people that have recently bought, that buy frequently, and have a high monetary value. So these are your long-haul customers, people that are loyal to your brand and have been purchasing a lot. In this type of segment, everyone will have the same type of behavior because you won't name a customer a VIP unless he makes sure he fits this criteria, right, of the RFM uh, score analysis. But, but let's take two groups of customers which are more in a tandem with uh, what you were saying earlier with conversion rate optimization and the acquisition part. Let's take a, a group of, uh, the, let's take a cohort of new customers. So in that cohort of new customers, you have customers that spend a lot on their first order, so they have a high order value. And then you will see people that don't spend as much. Now, if you would be blinded just by the RFM segmentation, and you will say that you have new potential uh, soulmates, and then you will have new potential churners, you will be wrong. Because in the case of new customers, you don't have historical data to back up any type of hypothesis that you would uh, that will serve you to have a strategy, right? So in the case of new customers, it's very important to um, not guess, okay, or not uh, think you know. So what I suggest is that when you have this type of new customers, you have to make sure that you do a bit of research before you do anything to this um to this, uh, you know, to these new people that joined your brand, because it's no saying that if someone that purchased today worth of three hundred pounds is not gonna is gonna come again in the in the in the buying cycle, or that someone that purchased for twenty pounds today won't spend three hundred, uh, you know, in the next thirty days. So here, I would be very cautious because there's a lot of uh, expert advice, and when I say expert, I have air quotes on expert. Um, it's a lot of expert advice in the market that when you have customers that have a high AOV, you should make sure you, I don't know, you stuff them like a turkey for Christmas. And if you have ones that are, have a low average order value, you should just, you know, be like, fuck them, you know, let's just focus on the, on the high roller. So no, I wouldn't do that. What I would do is I would do quantitative, uh, qualitative research on uh, this segment specifically, so that I would understand that the ones that have purchased and spent a lot of money, why did they do that? And the ones that didn't spend that much money, it means they haven't built trust with the brand to the level that they open their wallets enough. So this is this goes back to the jobs to be done um, uh, methodology is that every person, every consumer has a point, right, in their journey where they're at with you. So some people might have been looking at your brand for a long time and just decided to purchase today. Or some people just have discovered your brand and purchased today. And that can be reflected in how much money they spend. So when you do this research post-purchase, you'll be able to understand where are these people in, the, um, in, the, in their journey. And this is, goes back again to what I was telling you with uh, uncovering uh, the, the demand. So just, just like to wrap it up to answer your question, RFM segmentation is great. It's very important. This is the best way to um, identify uh, customer value. But the most important thing 
that uh, stands here in this conversation is that unless you do qualitative research on all the segments that you have and stop guessing, you won't be able to do much with RFM and you won't be able to do much with uh, increasing uh, your, uh, your lifetime value because everything depends on their behavior and the experience that you're providing them with because you can do a lot of conversion rate optimization gaming and get people to buy and so on. But if they buy and you're not sustaining, you know, what you promise, or if your expectations that you create are not met in the customer, they will never come and purchase again from you, no matter how good, you know, your product is. So I would be cautious with, uh, with our RFM segmentation. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a good starting point, isn't it? You know, I, I like your example about, you know, you've got that first time customer who, you know, you've got one who maybe comes in and spends £30 and one who spent 300 on that first purchase. Yeah. But if you look into the, if you, sorry, not if you look into the data, um, if you you question them, you might find out that, you know, you've got one customer who has been following you for ages, really likes your brand, but has just never had a reason to purchase for you from you. Exactly. Suddenly they do. Let's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna use the same example I, I used on uh, when I had a conversation with you guys on uh, experimental. No, what's it called? Unofficial experimentation. Unofficial club. experimentation club. We didn't have no name because it's just. Uh, <laughs> it's all we have. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, the bit. The beard brand. Because obviously I've I've got a beard. Yeah. But there was obviously quite a long period where I didn't have a beard. So there were brands that I really like, but if I haven't got a beard, I've got no reason to buy their products. Exactly. But then one one day, or not one day, one month, I suppose, <laughs> uh, I've grown a beard, I need those products. So I'm going to go to that band, uh, that brand and buy products. But I might just buy the one, the one product that I've identified as the one I want. And that might just cost me, let's say, 15, 20 pounds. But I'm, I, I, there's a high chance. Yeah, I'd say there's a high chance I'm going to come back in a month when I've used that product and I'm going to buy another one and then another one. Um, so so my, my potential lifetime value is going to be really high, but, but yeah, you just don't know it because there's no data there. But at the same time, you might have someone who's come in and spent a hundred pounds straight away. And if you, if you purely look at the value that they've spent and the fact that they've, you know, made their, their first appearance, you know, made themselves known to your business for the first time, they've immediately spent a hundred pounds um, but it turns out to be a, like a gift box, like a gift bundle. So yeah. that should then indicate that this person is probably not going to be a particularly valuable customer to you because they're probably not buying for themselves. Like you still need you still need to go check that and qualify it. Um, but it's, it's possible that because they're not buying for themselves, that's going to be the one purchase you ever have from them. But if, yeah, if you take that if you take that approach of uh, this person has scored a five for monetary. Because they're a they're in the highest value, uh, and, and just focus on that. You, you're just going to, you know, waste your efforts, and uh, you're going to be marketing to someone who, who just may not care at all. Yeah, and I think it's also very um, important that um, I mean, it's super. Um, sometimes you just get like drunk on you know the idea that you know I have data and I'm going to do stuff with it. The problem is that a lot of people in, at the moment, since this uh, customer data platform uh, thing exploded, which is something old, but it just exploded. And this is the reason why we don't position ourselves as a customer data platform, as a CDP, is that most brands have installed at least two or three CDPs, right? So we have users 
on uh, on our software that tell us that they're using two or three CDPs at the moment. But you know what the problem is? No one knows what to do with the data because it's great to have data. It's great to understand what's your profitability per channel, right? So where are you most profitable? Are you on Facebook? Are you on the website? Are you on ads or, or uh, Facebook ads or whatever, or email? It's great to know and have these segments. It's great to understand your retention rate and your customer journey from a transactional data perspective. But at the same time, that doesn't mean shit because you, if you don't take the extra mile to talk to people, you won't understand where they are because it's a decision-making, uh, you know, it's a buying decision-making process, right? So there are, people are always in a decision-making process. They make a lot of, I don't know, trade-offs or they, make, they, they put a lot of thought into what they're buying just to get to buy something in the end. And that thing can come at any moment, right? So you can, unless you have the chance to speak with these people so you can understand what are some common buying patterns that they have, what is the job they hire you for, are you doing that job right for them? Did, did you know? Did you meet their expectations? Like there's so many things that happen. So I think the only way you can stop playing the guessing game if you are doing e-commerce marketing, even if you're doing email, even if you're doing ads or website personalization or whatever you're doing, don't guess. I mean, it's great to have the data, but you need to have research. You need quali- uh, qualitative data. It doesn't exist, and that's the biggest misconception about um, uh, about optimizing customer lifetime value. Because most people see it as transaction, whereas it's, it's everything but that. Like, yeah, of course, the the end objective is transaction. You want people to purchase from you frequently, and you know you want them to spend money, but they won't unless you fix your customer journey, unless you fix the customer experience, unless you fix the things that they are bothered by. But if you don't ask them what they're bothered by, how will you know where to fix, right? So the the only reason I say you have to have, um, to have to proceed with caution when you do RFM segmentation is because there's a lot of science and narrative behind it. It's not just segments and then you plug them to an email marketing campaign and you're just doing the same thing. You don't change the way you communicate with people. And it's something that I see. I mean, I'm talking to a lot of email marketing companies. And uh, while there are a lot of them that understand the fact that they need to change the na- their narrative and to adapt it as what the customers are asking or as the customers behave, there's still a lot of email marketing um, uh, companies or agencies that think that just because they have some segments of customer, they can, uh, you know, feed them the same content. And it doesn't work, you know. An email has become the best, you know, the best channel to communicate with people, especially now with all the data privacy and scandals and beefs and digital beefs with, um, with um, you know, with, with the third-party data. So you might, if you're doing email marketing or if you're a brand that does their own email marketing, if you get which, whatever, CDP or whatever you're using to segment customers, make sure that you use your energy or invest in uh, doing qualitative research. And yeah, a lot of people will say, yeah, but research is expensive. I mean, 
I think it's less expensive than advertising, right? Because you get to a point where all your business is coming from new customers, right? So your acquisition costs is trumping the customer lifetime value and you are losing money with each new customer that you're bringing. So I think that's going to cost you your business, not if you invest, I don't know, a few thousand on, on, on research. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's yeah, like... I mean, you can, yeah, you, like you say, you can invest... It doesn't even have to be thousands, really. You can invest a little bit of money now. And, you know, to to kind of put it into terms that some people might want to really focus on, you might be able to take 20% off your CPA if you do the research really? and really understand your customers. Really? Yeah, absolutely, um, you, because you know how to target better. Yeah, but then you may also add 20 to 30% on the lifetime value. Yeah, and you exactly. may, And you may do both. You might, you know decrease your cost of acquisition, get more customers in, and then more of your customers are having a higher lifetime value. So it's cheap, cheaper to acquire customers who are more valuable just because you've understood them. Um, but it doesn't even have to be expensive. I mean, obviously, if, if you're just starting out, then you yeah, have, of course. you've got no data, no customer base to to kind of interview. So, so you might have to put a bit of money in it to do market research. But I've just run a, a survey with a, a client and uh, you know we we need to do a follow up because this the the point of this survey has kind of led us in a direction which we then need to go into more detail. But what we found is um, the majority, the vast majority of customers didn't really know what they were doing uh, when buying from this company, and uh, and that that kind of. It, it, in a way that confirmed our beliefs anyway, because that's what kind of what we were thinking. And we feel like no one in the industry actually does it in a better way. But it was just really interesting that almost no customers actually rated their knowledge of what they were doing with this in this particular industry. Um, as I was about to say above average, that wouldn't make sense. But, you know, Above uh, product, where what product? Are I mean, you talking about? it's in the kind of computing world, con- consumer computing products. Um, but literally, I, th- I think the the average knowledge came out as about four um, on a, on a rating of one to seven. So pretty much bang in the middle. People have like a bit of understanding of things, uh, which you would kind of expect in in this particular vertical, um, but but no one claim to be anywhere anything near uh anything near expert level knowledge in any of the products and you know if, if we hadn't done that research you know it, it would be easy to assume that you know so it's a uh, custom especially custom pcs effectively mm-hmm. um if we hadn't done that knowledge it would be easy to assume that anyone looking for a custom pc has probably got a very good idea of what they're doing because if you if you don't, you you just go to PC World or something or Amazon, somewhere like that, and just buy you know buy a pre-made PC. Um, but it turns out that was a, that's a very wrong uh, opinion to take. So this research is going to lead us down a, a really interesting route that then should have should have massive impacts on customer lifetime value, which is the ultimate goal, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it depends. In my opinion. I don't uh, believe in impulse purchasing at all. 
I mean, a lot of times the way customers behave can, for to, to us marketers, can you know, can be seen as irrational, right? <laughs> irrational uh, type of uh, of behavior. But if you understand the context that they're in, that that behavior might might okay might become um, uh, rational. I don't I don't believe in randomness in in my opinion because. It's just that just because, you know, sometimes you don't plan out to do something, it doesn't mean something, you know, in the background was, you know, did not cause that to happen. Because, you know, there's there's like, for me, there's, I don't understand impulse purchasing because there's always a lot of, uh, you know, context that is not discovered in the, that led to that purchase. And I can give you an example I uh, always hated uh, those baby swings because they're expensive. They take a lot of space and I don't know, I don't need them. So when my, when I had my first son, I didn't buy those because again, I don't like them. And when I was with, uh, with my, my, uh, my baby right now, uh, he was going through a period of, you know, having all this temper tantrums and, you know, he's a baby. And my uh, husband tells me we should buy him one of those, um, baby swings and i'm and i said to him fuck it i'm not paying a hundred dollars on on that you know because i'm not gonna need it so one night he didn't sleep uh, at all from 10 to 2 he was crying and me at 2 30 or something like that i don't know what hour was in the night i ended up buying that fucking uh, thing and guess what i put the baby in it he never used it so I have it in my house right now and I spend this money, but you know why I bought it? Because I was very tired and my husband told me, listen, you know, like this might calm him down. So me in that moment looking for a desperate solution to calm down my baby, because if I were there, then I would have gotten it in the morning because we have this, uh, some sort of Romanian Amazon that has the same day delivery as well. So, which is great. <laughs> but the thing is that I never wanted that. Never did. They don't believe in it, but it it takes just one thing to happen to make you do something. And that's what I'm saying in general. I'm not saying this because it's me, but I think our minds, our psychology functions that you get something that, you know, triggers you towards doing some progress, right? Because everyone is looking to do progress. That's why it's, we're buying different it, stuff. It's that jobs, jobs to be done, isn't it? At oh yeah, the, I'm a I'm a I'm a scholar of that. I just yeah. actually applied to applied to Harvard to do this course by Clayton Christensen, and oh, I yeah. got in. Believe it or not, oh, nice, I awesome. Don't know how. I don't know, but I got in. And uh, yeah, I mean, I believe a lot in the jobs to be done um, methodology because I think it's the best way to understand. I mean, yes, it takes time. We. Uh, have did a lot of uh, hours of research and we, we have been doing this uh, for like two and something years when we met Bob the first time here in Bucharest and he was speaking at an event, uh, how to web, and he had a workshop afterwards. This is like two, three years ago. I don't remember exactly. But anyway, we went to his workshop and he told us, you know, like he taught us that we were there, how to apply this to, uh, to, your, uh, to your business. And we, you know, we got friends with Bob back then, and uh, we started doing this for the for our customers um, since 2019. 
And uh, then we moved it to the e-commerce world. And it's it, it's nuts, you know, like 199 to 100% of the time, the brand owner thinks they have a product that solves the problem. And every time the problem that they think they're solving is not what customers are, uh, are you know, are buying their products to solve uh, the problem for. And this is what I, I got into a banter yesterday with Rishi. <laughs> <laughs> on LinkedIn because he says that you always have to talk to the founder and, I, and me and Lorenzo were like no you should never talk to the founder you should always talk to the customers because you cannot know right um, and if you want I can give you an example we work with a Canadian brand called Hush Blankets and they're oh, amazing yeah. they're super amazing so they sell uh, weighted blankets so in the beginning, when uh, before we started doing this with them, uh, the uh, their message is that you know the blanket is curing uh, anxiety. So we did a hundred hours, I think, of research and interviews with their uh, with their uh, best customers that had you know a lot of purchases, and we ended up finding out that people buy their product because they don't want to feel lonely. There's a lot of people feeling lonely. Yeah, and the blanket is super comfy, like it's a weighted blanket, right? So it has like, uh, it's very good for your for your sleep. They have an yeah. amazing product and uh, Valentin ended up buying them for the whole company. And uh, I'm getting mine tomorrow. I'm excited to use it. And um, yeah, so people were buying the blanket because they were lonely. A lot of couples broke up right now in the pandemic. Me and my husband didn't thank us. <laughs> It was a test of time, the pandemic, right? So a lot of people are lonely, you know, and I remember myself before I got married, you know, I was working all the time and I was lonely as fuck because I didn't have time to sustain a relationship because I was working all the time. And a lot of people were saying the same thing. I'm working all the time. I need something to feel normal again. So that was majority of the answers. Or people said that I want to make my family feel normal because they were buying the blanket for themselves, but they also were buying it for family members. So it's a total different thing than what they thought the product is doing. And we have like a lot of case studies like this when you expect something to be it, but it's not. So back to our conversation about customer lifetime value, as long as you as a brand or as an e-commerce marketer are able to create and uh, tap into the background of where your customer is, then you will be able to increase the, the lifetime value. The problem that I see in the e-commerce industry right now is a lot of focus on outputs versus the outcomes, right? So it's the main difference between a customer-centric company and a product-centric company because the customer-centric one is focusing on the outcomes and understanding the outcomes that customers are desiring and tapping into those, right? But the product-centric ones are focused on the outputs and they're selling features and discounting and coupons and whatever and those are good but you will only be able to have them for a short time if you have a brand that understands your outcomes what you are looking for and taps into building that safe environment for you as a consumer you will be able to keep them longer i mean you cannot keep everyone clearly and uh, so it's not even healthy to have you know uh, to keep everyone but it's very important to understand context. I've been talking about context a lot they, uh, lately, and it's just, it doesn't make sense. And I'm a data, you know, fanatic. But quantitative data is not enough. <laughs> it's not. It's really yeah. not. No, definitely. I mean, um, I think it was Rishi who shared a, a video 
it was kind of well, it wasn't really a teardown. It was more a review of a product page, and it was for a a baby cot. Um, and the it, the the idea was for this video was he was saying this is probably the best product page he's ever seen. It just did everything so well. But one of the key things was the kind of sub headline underneath the the picture was something like when baby sleeps, everybody sleeps. Exactly. That's just the key. That's the key selling point for it. Like you don't really care if it's comfortable. That's a nice thing. Obviously you're not going to buy, well, actually be interesting, but you're probably not going to buy a product that claims to be uncomfortable. Even if it then also says, um, but we guarantee that you'll have the best night's sleep ever. That's still going to put you off. But also the the fact that it's comfortable is is kind of I guess implied by the idea that you'll have a the best night's it sleep. Should be. <laughs> um, but also in this case, you are the buyer is actually less concerned about the comfortableness, comfortableness, comfortable comfortability. I don't no, know what I the think word it's... is that. Um, Comfort, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't really care how comfortable that product is as long as it puts the baby to sleep and keeps keeps it asleep. Like that's the yeah, I agree. that's the I goal. Agree. And then the benefit for that's you is the you then get to that's sleep. The outcome. Yeah, you might not have bought the uh, that product that you bought, you know, at two thirty a.m. Because with this product, your baby might have been asleep. Exactly, and I bought it from a marketplace. But I bought it because I was like, my outcome in my head was what my husband told me, right? So that's what I'm saying. Like, we have different forces of progress that are pushing us every day. And when the beauty of the jobs to be done in, uh, methodology is that you, you, by asking the right questions, you will find out the right answers. And things like this can help you position your brand differently. Because in the case of hush blankets, they have to position themselves better to, to serve the outcomes. You will not feel alone. You know, you're not alone. Yeah. And this, this has so much, you know, um, weight, you know, and takes a lot of weight off your shoulders. I should send them that idea. The, the blanket that takes the weight off your shoulders. I have to send them that idea. <laughs> but um, what I'm saying is that if you as a brand focus on understanding the outcome that your customers are looking for and you tap into that outcome and you make it again a safe environment for them to shop in and you know uh trust then it's gonna be clearly uh you know the the lifetime value would grow because they will continue purchasing from you that's why i'm always saying that uh damn i mean like for some people if unadvised or you know they don't have all the um, the you know the aspects of the of the of the problem and of uh, customer lifetime value customer lifetime value can actually uh flaw their uh, their business because as amazing as lifetime value is and I, I always call it like the gift the gift that keeps on giving in the hands of the people that don't know how to use it it can really damage uh, uh, a brand uh, an e-commerce brand yeah i guess a summary of what we've been said, what we've both been saying is like don't don't focus on the numbers too much and the data because it's very easy to lead to misleading uh, or to make misleading and uh, false uh, conclusions from that data. You need to get get that qualitative research done, understand your customers, and if you do that, it will then lead to growth in lifetime value. Yep, that sums it up uh, fairly. And uh, yeah, I mean, data is obviously super. Super important. 
But yeah, yeah, definitely it, not it, saying it, ignore it, but um, it's just to give you a starting point. You have yeah. to understand three important things about the customer context, outcomes, and the trade offs that they're doing to actually purchase. Because people are doing a lot of trade offs, I know yeah. I do that. Like, I find reasons to not buy shit online. Like, if I want to buy a product, the first thing I'm going to do is reasons to stop me from buying it because you know, you no one actually ever wants to spend money. Let's be real, like. They, we don't. So if we end yeah. up spending that money, we want to make sure that we took a, a, a good decision. And um, what I think that uh, even if I'm going super against the grain with, with what I'm about to say, like, it's amazing to have a customer data platform, but don't stop at that, right? Look again, context, outcomes, and trade-offs. You won't be able to do anything without those in your email marketing, in your advertising, in um, in your website personalization, in the onboarding of customers, in everything that you do, all the touch points of the customer journey cannot be uh, optimized unless you understand the context, the outcomes, and the trade-offs that customers are uh, are having in uh, in their uh, in the relationship with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, just on the, on the topic of data. Uh, what was really interesting when, when analysing that survey for my my client, um, initially the first thing I did was just take a mean average, and uh, then it was obviously you know, I I thought well all right that kind of gives us the average which is interesting to hear but what I don't know is how many people are you know those like expert level people, how many people are in that kind of uh, I haven't got a clue what I'm doing bracket, and how many people are actually kind of sat in the middle of yeah, I, I kind of know a bit about it, but I would definitely like to know more, and I need, and I still need help. Um, so I did, I, I did actually split the data out a little bit and analyze those into three segments. And what we found out is that pretty much ninety percent of people were bang in the middle anyway. So, so kind of, you know, splitting that out didn't didn't really help. Um, but the next stage is obviously it, it is that uh, that that more qualitative piece of of speaking to people. But what's really interesting, and uh, and I think a lot of people, I mean, I've I've had I know one person who says if you don't uh, incentivize, people just don't care, and they won't uh, they won't fill in the survey. You know, people don't want to. Not only did we get people to answer eight questions without an incentive, but around I think about seventy percent of respondents uh, have provided contact details for a follow up. And I've said we're willing to speak to the company, so it's it's definitely not that difficult to do qualitative research, especially if you've got the customer base. Exactly, and you know where to go from because this is the beauty of the RFM segmentation. It gives you uh, buckets of customers, and you don't have to think in buckets. That's the cool part because a lot of people think, "Oh, RFM is old. I don't want to think in buckets." Well, fuck, of course you don't have to think in buckets. We are just giving you a place to start and go and research. And I agree with you so much. Incentivizing doesn't always work. And I don't believe in over-incentivizing. Like, it's cool, you know, treat your people nice. Give them something from time to time. Everyone likes a discount. But people don't stay with you because of a discount. And, like, uh, the worst thing you can do is to have a product that has no value. You know, you know what I'm saying? And when I'm saying that, I'm not saying value in terms of the empirical um, 
you know, a figuratively speaking value. I'm talking about real monetary value. So people don't like something that it's, uh, I mean, they like free stuff, but they don't value free stuff. That's what I'm saying. They don't value stuff that's cheap. Yeah. So, also, you risk uh, you risk just getting loads of rubbish data. You know, people will come in, fill in, fill in the survey, not really care. Um, of so, th- course. so this means that we should have several hundred really, really fantastic quality responses because yeah. these are these are existing customers who haven't been incentivized and have they have no no real reason to to fill it in except to help us make the company better, which we did state we wanted to do. So these people are kind of bought in. Um, And I think if you've got that, even if you've got that bare minimum kind of brand engagement with people, you'll get a similar response. The the worst case is if you ask someone where they will go, you you get someone to pick up a product they bought six months ago and ask them, where would you go to buy a similar product and they don't name the brand that they bought from last time. That's, that's the worst case. Or, or if they just say, Oh, I'll just Google it. You know, it, it means you've, you've built no brand there, no engagement, you know, no brand recognition. You're going to basically have to acquire that customer again. Yeah. 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 And uh, uh, like a caveat, uh, uh, I hope I pronounced it right. Uh, like a caveat here is that, Always, always focus your research, your research efforts, and your research powers to um, people that have already made the decision, have already purchased. Not the people that are shopping around or they 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 don't want to, you know, make the decision because it's much more valuable to talk to people that have already purchased and understand the process that got them there than people that are still figuring out if they want to purchase or not, because by knowing the stories behind decision-making when it comes to buying stuff, it's going to be much more easier to make a clearer path for the ones that are still struggling with their uh, purchasing decisions. So again, Uh, I I, I agree with you. (laughs) I, I don't completely agree with that. I think it's really valuable to speak to people who have chosen not to purchase from you. Oh, I'm talking about the jobs to be done thing. I wouldn't do it on the people that don't buy. I, I see. I see. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the surveys yeah, yeah, on if... the website pre-purchase are super important because they can give you some sort of heads up on frictions or things you can improve or, you know, things that, you know, to turn them off. Yeah, of course. Like, uh, you know, you know that I come from a conversion rate optimization background. So it would be... Um, would be fucked up for me to say it's not good to do those surveys yeah. pre-purchase. What I mean, um, just into the, because, uh, you know, we were talking about the interviews thing. I would just uh, recommend people that really want to do, and I see there's more people adopting the the jobs to be done methodology is to focus on doing them with people that have already made the decision and not people that, yeah. uh, you know, say they want to do the decision. For those, as you said, is very cheap to create i mean it doesn't cost much it's not such a big monetary effort to create some great surveys and allow people to uh to tell you you know what they think and most of the people really want to talk to you that's yeah. the thing you need to incentivize them people are generally happy to you know especially if it's just a few questions um yeah exactly and, and it's going to help them. You <laughs> yeah pe- people are happy to answer you know even even when we do this follow-up i'm, I'm expecting to have to say you know we'd like to 
well, well we'll probably email a few people with some more questions and then follow and try and follow up on the phone with others but in both those cases i'm expecting to have to say we need maybe 15 minutes of your time for this follow-up whereas the first one i think the email said um probably like two minutes and i think the i think the average uh, response time was about two and a half minutes something like that so uh, e- even that message was <laughs> it was a little biased because even though I went through the survey a couple of times and timed myself because um, I wrote the questions I obviously <laughs> I obviously had that uh, uh, knew what was coming up and and uh, and I probably wasn't thinking my answers through as, as some as an actual customer but um, yeah so just uh, before we before we run out of time. Um, I'm not going to ask you, do you have any pet peeves? It's going to be what, because uh, obviously I know you will. I know you'll have loads. Uh, what's your number one pet peeve <laughs> I'm not in marketing? very secretive. I'm not very secretive of mine. <laughs> I don't like, uh, my pet, my biggest pet, what really grinds my gears and what really, uh, it's one of my pet peeves is, um, <sighs> it's the new customer lifetime value experts on social media that talk about it, but never actually uh you know had a client that they did something with in this uh direction because i have nothing against moving with the times you have to move with the times you have to adapt right but the problem is that you need to make sure that you understand the dangers of it because people are talking about customer lifetime value and segmentation as if it's something easy which is not it's so not and I'm not uh, putting myself as, I, I hope I'll never be like, I, I'm not an expert, I'm not an influencer or a thought leader. I run away when people are calling me that. It's just that we have to be more, how can I say this? <sighs> we have to be more careful when we um, advise the ones around us in the sense that we should have some sort of base and foundation when we give advice to companies and not do it just to inflate, you know, ourselves on social media. Because there is a lot of perceived value on social media. And I remember I was still, I had a post like this that a lot of marketers right now, they just take the most obvious truths about whatever in marketing and post them online and have 2,000 people that agree with them. And then they are good perceived as a good marketer, right? But those people if you look into their history and if you look at stuff, you see that they don't have nothing, right? Then just, you know, all this social media stuff. Yeah. I guess, I guess, uh, yeah, that's, it's something that grinds my gears when I know like last year you were selling Facebook ads and now you're saying that advertising is bad and you should do retention. It's like, okay, you know, it's, it's, uh, I get it, but still, you know, Uh, what bothers me is like, as I think about the brands that need help, and they're advised by people. And then, you know, I think it probably happened to you to have customers that work with an agency or consultant before, and they really fucked their business up. And then you had to make sure you place the pieces together. And it's hard to work in someone else's mess. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, you're right. People who, people who are loud, loud marketers, but don't actually, like don't understand it, I think is the issue. So they kind of regurgitate what other people say um, and they're just very loud about it. So they stand out and it kind of makes it seem like they know what they're talking about because they're saying exactly. this stuff. But actually, when you get into the detail with them, they don't really know it. 
It's so um, basic, yeah. And and, the, and like you say, they've never done it themselves. Yeah, yeah. That's, and then you end up, that's you quite know, frustrating. And yeah, exactly. And people end up working with these very loud folks that with the following. And they fuck up their business and then they start working with you or me or someone else that actually, you know, has experience in this, uh, you know, specter of, I don't know, whatever, retention, experimentation, whatever. But then you have to go and undo all the doings before and you're just like, you know, it blows your mind when you, um, and it's fine, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard, you know, the, I think the culture of marketing is very, uh, flawed by uh, social media and I'm saying I don't uh, you know I'm not shitting on it no one's hustle or whatever everyone should do what they think that it's good for them but at the same time I think it's a lot of uh, um, you have to weed out a lot until you find someone that um, is actually worth your time you know even as a camaraderie between marketers and even, you know, if you're a customer that wants to work with someone, you just have to make sure you weed out and do the very good weeding out process. That's a lot of talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the reason I I work as I do, you know, it's so just, just me. It's not an agency. Um, yeah. It's because I've, I've been burnt by agencies before um, because the, the main reason is because uh, I've, I've worked in startups which have had a bit of funding. We've gone to agencies, been pitched by the big people, the you know the really experienced people, but then get handed over to someone with you know like eighteen months experience, maybe exactly. two years. But what yeah. what really annoys me is in Facebook groups, and I'm <laughs> I'm I'm rarely on Facebook anymore these days, especially because I think it's just so much rubbish on there. It's it's all that stuff, you know, people just regurgitating rubbish. Um, but what really annoys me is in a Facebook ads group or whatever, seeing people post like. I've just I've just managed to convince two people to work with me. You know, just signed on two new clients, um, but I've never done this before. Can someone point me in the direction of of where I start? Oh my and god! It's like so you've literally just lied to people, managed to convince them to sign on with you, but you've got no idea what you're doing. And so, this is clearly someone who not only doesn't know how to use Facebook ads and doesn't know how to run the, the platform most likely has no marketing experience at all either yeah and that's that's why so many people get burnt by market by kind of little agencies and people and and it becomes tougher for the people who do know what they're doing because it's now a lot tougher to sell in that's uh that's probably one of my my biggest pet peeves yeah it's it's similar i i i feel you 100 percent this this is mostly what i um I'm, I'm saying, you know, more or less, there's a lot of perceived value. That's the problem. You know, we're just out here and it's, it's not a game of who has the most results, you know, actually trackable results. It's the game of who is the loudest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just finally, do you, is there any particular kind of area of marketing you feel is quite underrated at the moment, except obviously lifetime value? <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, a part. I don't know if it's a marketing necessarily part, but in the e-commerce marketing part, I think um, onboarding processes post-purchase are very ignored, and I mean in yeah. the sense that the lack thereof. <laughs> and um, uh, I think, uh, and I'm gonna be talking about this one of these days. Uh, I think one thing besides a lot of other things that you know e-commerce marketing people have taken away from SaaS marketing is the onboarding uh 
they um, just like short thing here. I think that uh, the customer support people should be seen as revenue, uh, you know, uh, revenue uh, streams instead of, uh, I don't know, commodities or how, how brands are perceiving them. And I think the onboarding process can tap a lot into the customer lifetime value, but also into the customer experience. Because mostly what I see is those three sad emails post-purchase, which are order, you know, resume, your confirmation of payment, and, you know, the shipping uh, thing. And I mean, those are the three emails that are the most read and the most open because you purchased. You just purchased, you're waiting to get a confirmation that you put your address right. You know, like you, you are going to open those three emails after your first purchase. And there is nothing done there. It's yeah. always something either super salesy and like, you know, you just bought something and you're showing someone another t-shirt or a pair of pants. And there is when I would introduce an automation from the customer support team that has a reply button. A lot of people have a no reply email address when they're sending this. And I think it's so wrong. And what I would do is I would create an automation from the customer support team that says, welcome person, whatever your name is. This is me, like a real message. I'm the customer support specialist. This is your order. Everything is happening good, you know, blah, blah, blah. If there's anything that you need or you have any questions, just reply to this email. I'm here for you. Yep. I would think if you would do just this, I think it's going to be a lot less tickets, a lot less confusion. And obviously, you know, what I would also do, I would cr- I would create another message where you send people like some sort of a map of your website. This is where the refund policies are. This is where the FAQ is. This is that. This is that. And if you need anything else that you don't find here, just let us know. Reply to this email. I'm here for you. Like there's so much things that you can do in the onboarding process that can really make people return and buy from you again. So that's the most neglected part, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's really good. Um, I like the idea of, uh, uh, yeah, I like the idea of the email saying, uh, here's our returns policy, here's where the fuck they are and right. that has to do with bad website experience yes but at the same time will people buy they're lazy they are lazy and they yeah. don't want to look for stuff so i think if you have everything in one email you will always go back to that email because you remember and it's uh it, it looks good on you if you you know if you're being transparent and providing that information yes um, but yeah, I mean, the, the no reply thing, that just needs to, to end. Oh, there's, there's just no need for it, really. It, literally, every email should have just a, re- a reply email that at least goes to customer support. There's no there's no other reason for it. Yeah, um, because, it's, it's, it's you know, if you, you, you send me a transactional email or something, I might, I might have a question about it. Or if you have, send me yeah. a newsletter, I might have a question about it. Or, you know... By making it difficult for the customer, you're just going to lose customers because you'll get people who can't be bothered to go hunt it down themselves. And so we'll just leave it. You know, you, you might, you know, and we might be talking about people emailing in to say, oh, have you got this this in stock? And you go, well, we don't want to deal with these emails because of, uh, you know, people can check on the website. But then at least use that information to say, right, well, how do we make this process better for people? Like how how do we make it easier for that person to check the stock without having to contact us? So even even the annoying stuff gives you feedback to then help improve your business. And how much would it change to actually have your support team there and people actually giving a fuck? Like 
I know from a very close experience to me, which I cannot speak on yet in a namely way, but I know e-commerce brands that hire customer support and they have so much good, good quality, uh, qualitative, uh, you know, data that they can share with the, with they're sharing with the brand that the brand doesn't give a fuck because the marketing team doesn't care. Yeah. So then you have great quality data because the customer support team is the ones that are talking to the customer. And then you have the marketers that never talk to the customers and come up with shit out of their ass. So it's, it's sad. It's sad. It makes me sad how undervalued is the customer support people and undervalued is the onboarding experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. I've, something I've mentioned a few times uh, recently, uh, using customer yeah, support. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, it's, 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 uh, this is what I'm talking about. Bately, me, Lorenzo, and uh, I know you've been vocal about it too. Not only the customer support part, my, my, my main beef is with the onboarding, but it ties into the customer support. Give people easier access than putting, you know, like a fucking chatbot on the website. Who does that? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's vile. For me, it's vile. It's very vile. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Well, this has been awesome stuff. If people want to get in touch, find out more, what's the best way to do it? They can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter or Clubhouse. I'm at the CLV lady everywhere. So just just at the CLV lady me on every platform besides Facebook or Instagram because I hate them both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, awesome. Cool. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Will. This was fun. If you're not monitoring your customer lifetime values and segmenting your customers properly, you could be missing out on some serious opportunities to make money. You need to understand who your most valuable customers are so you can treat them extra nice, but you also need to know who those uncertain customers are who you know may have made that first small purchase, but still need a little bit of nurturing to really drive that value from. But the one key thing to remember is that customer lifetime value comes from a great customer experience. You can't just blast your customers with email after email pushing your products. It just shows that you don't really care about the customer. Give them a great experience, check in on them, treat them well, and they'll come back to you, spend their hard-earned money with you, and help you grow your business. If you'd like to learn more about customer lifetime value, reach out to Juliana on LinkedIn. She's always happy to chat and uh, and help businesses understand this more. And if you're looking to find some opportunities on your, on your website and your, in your business, just drop me a message on LinkedIn and we'll see what we can sort out. Any other podcast questions, feedback, or guest requests, please send them over to will at customerswhoclick.com. Next up, I've got Kendra McDonald on, and we're going to be talking about buyer psychology and the customer journey. But until then, keep those customers clicking.